Here's a first. I agree with the Biden administration on something. Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre condemned the execution of Kenneth Eugene Smith, saying, quote, it is very troubling to us here at the White House. Now, whether they'll do anything about that depends on whether Joe Biden is even lucid enough to have an opinion. And while the death penalty is a controversial topic, the execution of Kenneth added a whole new layer. The major point of distress about this man's execution revolves around how he died. Alabama tested out a new method of execution that used nitrogen asphyxia, making it the first state and Kenneth the first person to be executed this way. Advocates of the death penalty always fall back on how we kill people humanely. It's an oxymoron if I've ever seen one, but nevertheless, that's the justification they give for it not being a cruel and unusual punishment, which is barred by the U.S. Constitution. But Kenneth's execution was anything but humane, or quick for that matter. He struggled for 22 minutes. Nitrogen asphyxia works by replacing the oxygen in your body with nitrogen. It takes about 15 minutes for that nitrogen to flow through your body. Kenneth writhed and shook and labored in breathing before he died. Witness Reverend Jeff Hood said he saw a man, quote, struggling for their life. Proponents of nitrogen asphyxia touted as a painless method. In fact, Alabama court records claim that it is, quote, perhaps the most humane method of execution ever devised. Given the scuttlebutt over using this new method, an appeal was made to the Supreme Court for a stay of execution. It was denied. However, Justice Sonia Sotomayor issued a dissenting opinion, saying that Alabama had chosen Smith as, quote, a guinea pig. But Alabama was not deterred by Kenneth's execution or Justice Sotomayor's warning. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall said that more than 40 other death row inmates have chosen to die by nitrogen asphyxia. Currently, death row inmates in that state can choose this new method, or lethal injection, or electrocution. Given that you're an inmate on death row about to be killed, I'm not sure how much choice one actually has in anything, but that's a whole other point for a whole other podcast. This attorney general sees nitrogen asphyxia as some sort of gold standard he's setting, going as far to say that, quote, I think it provides an opportunity for states to use this method. Will other states use it? Probably. Should they, though? That's the real question. As associate editor at The Independent, Sean O'Grady pointed out in an article, quote, if you wouldn't treat a dog in such a way, you shouldn't do it to a human being, no matter how evil. He elaborates on this example, saying, quote, it should go without saying that no vet would suggest hanging your dog or strapping it to a chair and pumping 2,000 volts through it, unless they had an especially macabre sense of humor. I also think most dog owners would be disgusted by fitting a mask to your hound and administering nitrogen gas, during which process the animal would be terrified, in pain, suffering fits, and possibly choking on its own vomit and left in a vegetative state. The gas might even leak and affect others. Understandably, the vet's preferred method is an injection so the pet can pass on quietly with some dignity and in peace. So reflect on that. If we are going to kill people... Why are there any other options than a needle? But here's an even stickier question I pose directly to conservatives, who by and large support the death penalty. If you think that the COVID-19 vaccine was a poison shot designed by the government to kill, then why would you support a poison shot designed by the government to kill inmates? 
This discussion over nitrogen asphyxia is more than just one man and more than just his suffering. It's bringing up core issues about the death penalty. While everyone is arguing about whether or not it is humane to use this method, maybe we should be asking, is it humane at all for the government to kill you? Since the time that we reinstated the death penalty in 1976, we have executed more than 1,500 people in the U.S. That's a lot of dead people. So let's take a step back and kind of look at the macro view of this issue. Do Americans even lack the death penalty? Well, more than half of U.S. adults favor the death penalty for murderers, according to the Pew Research Center. However, support for it has declined over time. Since 1996, support for the death penalty fell from nearly 78% down to 52%. In the meantime, opposition to the death penalty has more than doubled, from 18% to 44%. And we've also seen a nearly 30% decline in the number of executions that occurred from the year 2000 until 2019. Currently, 27 states allow for the death penalty. Most of these are in the South and West. However, nearly half of those pro-death penalty states haven't executed someone in more than a decade. So even though there's a lot of support from states and a majority of Americans, even though it's a slim majority, actually support the death penalty, there is a bit of reticence in actually using it. Why could that be? So prepare to go on a deep dive with me about how the death penalty is a failed policy. My first claim against the death penalty regards that it's far from infallible. We are not 100% airproof in our current executions. Innocent people have been sentenced to death and executed. Consider Kirk Bloodsworth. In 1985, he became the first death row inmate to be exonerated by DNA evidence. If you support the death penalty, you probably want it to be applied to people who actually committed the crime, not the innocent. The justice system in this country isn't suited for that, never has, and probably never will. People are not perfect. We still find innocent people on death row all the time. In 2022, Marilyn Malero was spared from execution. She was the 190th person to be exonerated from death row in the United States. She was also the 16th death row exoneration in Cook County, which has the most exonerations of any county in the country. She was Illinois' 22nd exoneree from death row. The only state with more exonerations than Illinois is Florida. Malero wasn't saved by DNA evidence, like you might think, but instead by a dirty detective's deeds coming to light. The detective grilled Malero for 20 hours and threatened her with a death penalty and losing her kids. She wasn't allowed to sleep or talk to a lawyer. Under pressure, Malero signed a confession. But Malero wasn't the only victim. In fact, 31 cases involving this detective were vacated. Illinois Attorney General Kim Fox said, quote, we no longer believe in the validity of these convictions or the credibility of the evidence of these convictions. Are we willing to hang our hat on the perfection of detectives and cops when that could very well lead to us potentially executing innocent men and women? Because let me tell you something, this detective, he's not alone. There are all sorts out there just like that, fouling up the criminal justice system for everyone. You know that quip that prisons are filled with innocent men? Well, maybe not all of them, but enough that we should care. It's estimated that at least 4% of those sentenced to death are innocent, according to a 2014 study. What could make up this 4%? Well, that's easy. It's a calamity of errors that are commonplace in the criminal justice system. It's what makes the death penalty so dangerous. 
Wrongful convictions are an inconvenient truth. The lucky victims of these wrongful convictions sit on death row, languishing away for decades before getting exonerated. Others die and cause us to later look back and go, oops, maybe he didn't do it after all. Consider the story of these three inmates as told by conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Frank Lee Smith was sentenced to death in Florida on the testimony of a single witness. No physical evidence tied him to the crime. Four years later, the same witness saw a photo of a different man and realized she had made a mistake. DNA tests later confirmed that Smith was innocent, but it was too late. He had died in prison of pancreatic cancer. Cameron Todd Willingham was executed in Texas in 2004 for setting fire to his home, killing his three children. Experts now say that the arson theories used in the investigation are scientifically invalid. Willingham may have very well been executed for an accidental fire. Gary Gauger was sentenced to die in Illinois for the murder of his parents. Police questioned him for 18 hours, depriving him of sleep, food, and drink. They convinced him that he had blacked out, and that's why he didn't remember killing his parents. He was sentenced to die on the basis of this confession. An unrelated investigation later uncovered the people who actually committed the crime, and Gauger was exonerated. You see, forensic science is only as good as the scientists conducting it. In fact, about 10 to 15 percent of criminal cases even contain DNA evidence. I know, Law and & Order and CSI would have you think differently. Once widely accepted forensic methods have started to show their weaknesses over time. These include bite mark analysis, hair comparisons, tool mark evidence, arson investigation, fingerprint analysis, dog scent evidence, comparative bullet lead analysis, shaken baby syndrome diagnosis, and bloodstain pattern analysis. These problems are then compounded by things like human negligence and malfeasance. It's not uncommon for forensic science practitioners to provide misleading testimony that creates connections to evidence where there isn't one. They are guilty of mischaracterizing exculpatory results as inconclusive. They've been known to downplay limitations of forensic science methods. Even worse, lab techs have a history of fabricating results to bolster the prosecution's case or even hide exculpatory evidence. Then there's just the chance of plain old-fashioned mistakes being made. But hold your horses, it doesn't end there. Justice is also only as good as judges and attorneys practicing law, and law enforcement is only as good as the police patrolling the streets. From coerced pleas, eyewitness misidentification, false confessions, harmful surveillance, and investigative technologies, inadequate defense, misapplication of forensic science, misconduct of police and lawyers, and unreliable and unregulated informants, there's a lot of potential for wrongful convictions to occur. The sad part of all this is it's really hard to determine an exact number of innocent men that have been killed by execution as courts and defense attorneys just move on with cases of the living instead of correcting potential past mistakes. And appeals cases for the living are not focused on innocence either. That court is supposed to only determine whether the original trial was properly conducted. And since these cases aren't big money makers, they're left to pro bono lawyers, family members, and law students. Imagine your innocence and freedom hanging on a thread by some 20-somethings in a law library. My second claim against the death penalty regards that the Supreme Court has even flip-flopped on its constitutionality. 
In Furman v. Georgia, the court examined whether execution violated the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. The court found that the death penalty had been applied in ways that disproportionately harmed minorities and the poor. Let me insert a little fun fact here. More than half of all people exonerated from death row have been black. But back to the story. Justices Brennan and Marshall claimed it was unconstitutional for any reason. The death penalty was then halted for the next four years in the U.S. States then began rewriting their death penalty laws to make sure they weren't applied, quote, arbitrarily or discriminatorily. Then in 1977, Gary Gilmore became the first person to be executed after the hiatus, and it never stopped since. In 2008, the Supreme Court re-examined the death penalty again, and they said, quote, the death penalty should not be expanded to instances where the victim's life was not taken. While they closed one door, they opened another one wide open that could be very loosely interpreted. The court ruled in that same case, quote, we do not address, for example, crimes defining and punishing treason, espionage, terrorism, and drug kingpin activity, which are offenses against the state. My third claim against the death penalty regards that it's as costly as it is ineffective. Simply put, the cost and time of death penalty appeals do not justify its use. Death penalty cases are expensive and drawn out, rightfully so. We are, after all, taking a man's life. But before you say, let's just kill them, it's cheaper than feeding and housing them in prison, well, you'd be wrong. This concept that we're going to save money by killing people does not add up to the facts. The death penalty has cost California $4 billion since 1978. Florida spends $51 million more a year to execute their prisoners for murder instead of just giving them life sentences. Texas death penalty cases cost on average $2.3 million. That's nearly three times what it would cost to incarcerate someone for 40 years. North Carolina spends more than $2 million per execution over the cost of a life sentence. Oklahoma spends three times more on a death penalty case than what it would on a non-death penalty case. And Kansas spends more than four times as much. And when it comes to inefficiency, the death penalty is not a deterrent for murder. A recent study in criminology and public policy showed there was no change in homicide rates. Stephen Oliphant's research showed that there was, quote, no evidence of a deterrent effect attributable to the death penalty statutes. So where does this leave us? Well... Let me ask you, where should we draw the line with government-approved murder? Trump already wants to use the death penalty on drug dealers. What happens if the left decides to take it a step further and use it for their political gain? It's all going to become a slippery slope one day. Consider this. Some might say an insurrectionist is a harm to society. And then wouldn't that mean the January 6th people would be up to have their heads on the chopping block? Believe me, the left will then try to take the power of execution, use it for their own political games. Once this starts, it will escalate very quickly. They will have no problem executing those who threaten democracy and are deemed an insurrectionist. We've seen how they treated those people so far, and it ain't pretty. If none of this long-winded rant of mine against the death penalty has managed to convince you that it's wrong, then ask yourself this. If you were wrongfully convicted... Would you be comfortable knowing that bureaucrats inside the criminal justice system are the only thing between you and a needle? I don't think so. Thanks for listening to Overnight Opinions. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for an all-new episode.
In the meantime, be sure to follow the Ladies Love Politics channel on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Variety on Social, True Social, X, BitChute, and Rumble.